Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Welcome to Design Your Life, architect series, from Lego to skyscrapers. We'll be speaking to some of the most influential architects who are shaping our cities and the way that we live. We'll go behind the facade to understand what inspires them, how they juggle business and family life and the responsibility that comes with designing the places, cities, and the destinations that we live, work, and play in. Today, I catch up with my good friend and director of Durback Block Jaggers, Neil Durback. We'll be chatting about his journey from growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era, the Beatles, and why being able to draw as an architect is a vital part of bringing ideas to life. Hey, Neil, thanks for being on Design Your Life. Great to see you. Fantastic to be here, man. It's really cool. We've known each other for a very long time since I moved to Sydney back in 2004. How are you doing? Good. God, it's been a while, huh? It's been a really long time. How, how has COVID affected you um, in, the, in your practice? In the practice, well, the practice, you know, I think everybody's experiences were probably now in reflection this, were pretty similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually had more of an existential crisis than I thought I was going to have. I, okay. I really thought the whole scene was going to collapse very quickly. Mm. And, you know, it was kind of terrifying, actually. Yeah. and It's a year ago, isn't it now? Yeah. Virtually this week, I think. Now you sort of look back and I think, wow, I'm kind of totally overreacted. I mean, people I know were buying freezers and yeah. still giving me tins of tuna that they'd bought. And um, I've got 200 liters of water in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, it was strangely, nothing, nothing terrible happened. And then it suddenly became really good. I mean, I think we were just incredibly lucky. Yeah. I think we have to remind ourselves that we, in this country, we've been incredibly lucky because the government's been so quick and mm. smart around controlling it. Other people right now are, are in terrible uh, situations. So th- there was that moment where I, I felt the same. I just this time last year, I just thought, this is the end of our... Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of our business? Is this like, what, what's the future look like? It was such a, an alien feeling, wasn't it? Especially because we, you know, we've got some clients that have done very well. And you trust them, of course, because of that. And, and they were saying, just get rid of everybody and your stuff. Sell everything. This mm. is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because they seem to have their finger on the pulse, you sort of thought, wow. They must know something. They must know. And luckily, we didn't. Yeah. And then things stabilized so quickly. I mean, it feels like we're back in the office sort of late March, April, and didn't look back, you know. Yeah. No, I I felt the same way with our team. It just felt like, I mean, luckily over this last year, we didn't, we were fortunate enough not to lose anybody. So no one left the business. We didn't take on, well, we did take on some people actually, um, but it was replacing people that had left prior to the COVID. Um, But it's, I think that we're lucky too that there's a lot of infrastructure work been going on, mm. a lot of hospitals, a lot of infrastructure um, developments. But of course, it's changed. You know, we, no one in the world I don't think has experienced such a huge shift, mm. uh, and not in the way that we live, the way that we work, um, how technology is is going to gone gangbusters and grown, uh, the acceptance of that, etc., and how that's being used. I don't think things will ever be the same again. People keep talking about it going back to a normal. It's, it's not. It's, we're, we moved forward, and we're now, you know, uh, life is life is evolving. Um, have briefs changed for you as a result of, of COVID? Well, not as much as, as we thought halfway through. We thought everybody would be thinking, what is the new office like? What yeah. is the new house like? What is the new Hotel. city like? Yeah. What is the new, you know? And actually, that didn't happen as much as we thought. Wow. You know, which, and I think we all thought, oh, is it going to all be so different? And, you know, we're still doing office office project now and things, it's just a bit more space and a bit more interest in, well, things that we've always been interested in, which is, you know, like that the gardens are much more interesting than buildings. Mm-hmm. And space is a real luxury. Mm-hmm. And... I think those things have become more the norm than the exception. Has there been more of an emphasis on around fresh air or out, outdoor all the space? Things that we re- genuinely value and try and sort of put into every project have become, you know, sort of the norm. And that's, or mandatory. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a great thing. So you've been trying to you've been trying to push it for years, and now it's actually people that's now right. accept now it's it. Like everybody's doing it, so you think, well, what's next? Yeah, that's really cool. It's kind of funny. How, how come? Why was it? Because I've talked to a few people now about this, and they say there's a similar resistance in the past. They're trying to push sustainability, push open space, fresh air, etc. Um, and you know, there's been resistance, probably due to costs, hmm. which seems. Um, yeah, where does that come from in the stuff for the start? But also, why has it been so hard to kind of push? Didn't you think it was like advise? with everything? I mean, suddenly people who were living on the streets were accommodated quite easily yeah. in hotels. You know, things that things were fixed. Possible, like that. You know, play, people would fly much less. Yeah, all those sort of things just happened, and I think those are really positive things that have come out of this. And also, I think in Australia, there's the belief that science and and kind of the people who with incredible knowledge can actually lead you through these crises. Mm. Mm. you know it's not some mumbo jumbo that's kind of made up but and you sort of look at other countries and you think well that's kind of where they floundered because maybe in australia we do believe in that and clearly the government believed in science as well mm. that wasn't interesting it wasn't ideological it was all based on like what people seem to know, to it. I think also in hindsight, when you look at what happened with the fires here at the Christmas prior to March, or, I think, yeah, but I think that's what kicked everybody up the backside. Mm -hmm. I think everybody, the government and everybody around that going, oh my God, is this the end of the world then? We've or already had that warning mm -hmm. and people are already going, oh my God, we need to put, put things in place mm -hmm. to kind of look at uh, change and improving things for people. I think that perhaps that has been a, part to do with how well Australia actually reacted to mm -hmm. COVID. Um, you're originally from South Africa, mm -hmm. if anyone can kind of hear your accent. And what was it like, before we talk about how you got here, what was it like growing up in South Africa? It was a pretty strange place, as you can imagine. Um, we felt incredibly isolated, mm -hmm. always. I mean, I think the political environment sort of dominated every aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. So I think we were all brought up thinking politically, what's, what's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Those sort of things were really interesting. I think in a weird way we had this, I think I grew up with this incredible problem with authority because of the power of the state. And we all grew up thinking that the state was like a, you know, something that you railed against. Mm. And I think that kind of became this that you always had this issue with authority. And mm -hmm. I think, or that the, so the herd mentality was something that we really struggled with. You know, everybody was thinking this, but we should think that. Mm. And everything the state told you was bad was good. Mm -hmm. You know, so the Beatles that they said, they tried to ban the Beatles, we thought, Gee. so the more they tried to ban that stuff, the more you were interested. Travel was impossible. So you were very interested in your, like all your knowledge came through books really. Mm. Everything, architecture was like learned through books, really. Wow. So how did you get into architecture through books? <laughs> what, what was the, what was the um, inspiration around that? It was kind of, you know, the truth was, I really wanted to be an artist. And I think my parents just said, look, why don't you just do something else? And then you can be an artist. Mm. And architecture seemed to be something that friends of mine's brothers had studied and they mm -hmm. seemed to have a really good time doing it. Yeah. I mean, there was no like passion for it at all, in fact. Yeah. It was just like, it was something cool, you know, they all sort of dressed kind of interestingly and stayed mm. up late and, you know, it just seemed like a cool thing to do. Mm. It was like this burning passion that you often hear other architects say that they were mm. brought up thinking, you know, from the age of three, I wanted to be an architect. For me, it was just like, well, that kind of looks interesting. Well, that's interesting. You say now you say that you wanted to be an artist. That comes through really clearly now uh, for me when I look at your work because it's not. It looks like the work of an art, uh, artist. You know, it, you're incredibly expressive. I know I've seen sketches that you do, and you're very playful. Um, you're not doing what other people are doing. It's very original, and I know now you work with a team, um, but still, you're very much um, hands-on, right? Um, how did you end up coming to Australia? I'd been an exchange student here in the 70s and 
after that, I studied in America in Berkeley. I mm. really didn't like being in America much. Mm-hmm. And I, it seemed like this this place that you could never sort of penetrate. Mm. It was like it was, although it seemed to be kind of this loose, cool, anything goes place. Mm. But it, I just couldn't imagine getting through in it. It was this. It was immense. You know, the, I don't know if you know that sort of feeling. Whereas Australia seemed incredibly sort of transparent as a place mm. that you could uh, and there were articles and this is a true story in Rolling Stone about the film industry in the, in the 80s and saying like all these amazing movies were coming out of Australia mm-hmm. what like, like Mad Max Mad Max, Breaker Morant, The Last Wave like, and, and the article was like how did this happen yeah. in this place yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was like you, and they said maybe it was because was this incredibly optimistic place that wasn't stitched up, but was yeah. kind of open, and like in a in a way, it seemed that it was this perfect place to kind of experiment, you know, and that you were given room to experiment, and in, and anything was possible. Mm. It did have that vibe that you know that you could come here and like you just didn't know how it was going to turn out. Yeah, but it wasn't stitched up. No, you know, and politically it was really interesting. Yeah, you know, I think Hawke had just been elected, and I think Australia just had changed. You know, then it was this amazingly sort of optimistic time. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I I came uh, in two thousand four, as I said earlier. I mean, I felt exactly the same thing when I came here. I just felt like, wow, this country is incredible, potential everywhere. Uh, optimism, can-do attitude, mm. and um, and I still think it's the same way. I still mm. think the same today. It's come a long, a long way uh, since then. And quite interesting, you mentioned about the film industry because I just saw on the news yesterday they were saying that the, um, there's a huge boom now in film in Australia. Mm. A lot of people come from the states and production companies, and they're filming here. There's a huge tax incentive, um, but it's also a great place to be. It's, it's exactly. you know, COVID makes it safe. Incredible landscape, and uh, I think that's going to be really interesting. If they kind of maintain that, and that continues to grow in this country, it'd be really good for for Australia on the whole. Really, when did you partner with Camilla Block and David Jaggers to become uh, Durback Block Jaggers? When I arrived, we'd um, I'd worked with a guy called Harry Levine, and we won a few competitions, and one of them was Tusculum, which was for the Institute of Architects, and that got built, and then. I think then we were all caught up. I don't know if you remember Keating's Banana Republic thing. This was the recession we had to have. Mm. And things collapsed really quickly. And I started teaching. Uh, You know, you just looked for all sorts of work. And I started teaching and met, and I taught Camilla. Oh, wow. And she was a really amazing student. And just at the end of her course, I got this tiny little house to do. And I said to her, why don't you come and work with me? And it was incredibly loose. We were sort of set up in the back corner of Ken Ma's office. And oh, a hassle. Well, it became hassle. Jeez, how old are you? I don't know. <laughs> and, um, well, I thought hassle was from like 1910. No, no. Oh, okay. Ken, Ken Ma was with a guy called Robin McGuinness and Everard Klutz. Mm-hmm. There were three of them. Ah. And he took sort of pity on us and said, sure, you can set up in this far corner of our office yeah. and we had access to a printer and to their fax machine with these huge cables connecting phones and all that sort of stuff. And he was it was amazing. And that's where Camilla and I started to work. Ah. And yes, Ken became hassle, you know, years and years later. But at the beginning it was the three of them and there was the two of us. And actually they Robin worked on a, the, that house of ours, the first house. And David Jaggers? David came to work with us for a few months and then never left. But that was like, <laughs> that was about 10, 15 years ago that he joined us and became a partner a few years ago. Is it, does it feel very different having partners versus it being a sole director? Or was that a short period that you were doing your own thing prior, yeah, to, the, prior to the teaching? It wasn't actually that long before Camilla became a sort of a partner. I think after the Droger apartment, I think we became, oh, yeah. we became partners. That's Dave Droger's... Um, Daniel Droger. Oh, Daniel Droger. Dave Droger's brother. Brother, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And so Camilla and I did that, and that we won the Wilkinson and the Boyd for that, and wow. after that we became... Was that your first place? First project? No, no, the house in Darling Point was the first one. And then we done it, you know, like every practice, you sort of do a few renovations. And, mm. But, you know, Australia back then was very different. You know, people were doing these little houses and there was this incredible freedom, I think, and kind mm. of innocence about land values were much, you know, yeah. like they are now. Nice. Building costs were sort of reasonable. Yeah. And so there was this amazing kind of blossoming of all, the, of everybody of my age was just doing this stuff on their own, actually. Mm. It was much more a place of individual practitioners than mm. big firms. Well, just talking about collaboration, I mean, how important is it for you around collaboration? Do you guys collaborate on projects together or do you each have your own projects? No, we've always worked together, always. Okay. I think for me that's always resembled this kind of being at university. Which I've always, uh, you, know, you, you know how some memories become these sort of constants yeah. in your life. Yeah, yeah. The studio environment was something that I really loved. Yeah. I loved the idea that anybody could say anything about anything. And well, unless it's me, of course. You always exactly. shout me down whenever I make a suggestion. <laughs> but you know, you always you shout them down, and then you hear afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Think, oh, I'm joking, by the way. But and um, so we've always had that kind of studio culture, mm. and whoever's in the studio participates in that culture, mm. and that keeps things incredibly loose and unprecious. And you know, I think there's a kind of a healthy thing in being able to be shouted at or criticized without feeling hurt. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, we've moved from the kind of the design guru to co-creation now. It's, it's, it's like in most industries now, very much that, right? So it's kind of, it's designed by the collective in on the project. I mean, I think there's always has to be a, a steady hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in every creative industry, there, would, there needs to be somebody who says that's a better choice than that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's just this kind of wheeling free-for-all and no, like no. nobody has any idea of where it's going to end up. Yeah. You know, I think collaboration is, a, is an interesting, and it is the sort of the go-to thing, but I think, you know, at, at school, you, you know, you train to be, incredibly competitive about your yeah, ideas. exactly. You know, you, you're almost trained to be this terrier. Mm. But now you're sort of in this situation where there's this glorified collaboration and you're sort of encouraged to be a poodle, you know. And it's a very... And I think, I think the, there's this kind of imagination that collaboration always leads to something like much better than this, the individuals. But it's not always true. Yeah. I mean, I, I love working with bringing different people into the project from outside of the collective too, uh, because that, again, like a yeah, photographer, yeah. an illustrator, exactly. whatever, um, it just brings new ideas that you you kind of it's the mixture, isn't this? It? Kind of the fusion of different ideas coming together that makes something new. Um, I think that's really cool. Drawing and sketching is a big part of your creative process, right? What does sketching unlock in your designs? Sketching's. You know, I think, um, as Paul Clay said, it's, a, it's the thinking eye. It's sort of this thing that one sketch can effortlessly lead you to the next sketch. It's this kind of weird reverie yeah. that you, you're not thinking that hard about it. It's a sort of effortless drifting. Yep. It's, this, it's a really easy way for me to think, drawing. Mm. And it's kind of a form of thinking, but without all the effort. That's nice. I like that. Thinking without all the effort. Um, it's interesting because I've been using like these moleskin notebooks for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I ran out the other day and I found this, you know, the yellow trace mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. roll, uh, which architects use. Mm -hmm. Mine was a white one. And I, I got it out in a big um, Sharpie pen. Mm -hmm. And I just like, oh my God, this is so liberating. Mm -hmm. I had much bigger area to sketch ideas out. It was immediate. I wasn't restrained. And that's, I think anyone listening in, um, I would encourage that. Get one of these, uh, a huge piece of paper and start kind of sketching your ideas out on that as opposed to kind of doing it on a gridded notebook or an A5 or A6 uh, notebook. It, it, it makes a huge difference mm. to me. Um, and the ideas felt quicker. It felt more enjoyable. Yeah. You know, 
Less there's precious. Something, there's something incredibly sensuous as well about drawing for me. Yeah. Just the feel of that of the pen or pencil on paper. Yeah. yeah. That moves is incredibly um, pleasurable, actually. Yeah. So I mean, I've seen quite a lot of your sketches. I mean, they're they're beautiful, but they're incredibly. Um, I can't say simple, but they're very scribbly. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair comment? <laughs> There's some things I look at. Go, is that a building or is that just a cloud? What is that? You know, I know maybe maybe. Well, I uh, think the beautiful thing about drawing then is that it, you're not actually bound by thing anything. I mean, it could be a building, it could be a dog, it could be <laughs> a flower. It doesn't really matter. It's just something that you you're just doing all the time. But but how does it get? Because obviously, you know, the when you're doing a building, you kind of you got the sketch, the idea. The inspiration, etc., in its, I guess, more crude form than the, obviously the final thing. Mm-hmm. The process of getting from that sketch, that idea, to a documentation of, you know, the materials and the measurements and the the build of that place. That's a big leap, isn't it? It's huge, but I mean, often if you don't have that the clear intention, it's just this kind of fiasco. It's just this unfolding kind of catastrophe. Yeah, and I think that's the beautiful thing of a sketch is that it's it's always trying to sort of say what what do you what do you mean by this project what what are you trying to what are you really interested in Mm. this particular project and you can only get that through drawing loosely i think and do you share that with clients do they sit around look at your sketches or do you have to mock it up to a more kind of polished you know i found and it's something that i learned that geary used to do i don't know if he still does it but actually Drawing in front of a client is a really useful way of collaborating with them straight away. Mm. That the sort of that you're drawing the thought. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and they kind of they they almost like wow. So that's yeah, yeah. That's how you think about it, and it's a much more um, convincing way, I think, of communicating your your yeah, real yeah. ideas with totally. the client. Because these presentation drawings and the plans and all that stuff that you do, you know, it's quite, it's incredibly abstract and it's kind of alienating to a lot of people. Whereas if you're just drawing it and they're saying, all oh, right, so that's what you, that's what we could do. And it also has this incredible freedom. Yeah. So they say, oh, I'm not sure about that. Then you can just say, well, we could also, of course, do it this way. Or what about doing it this way? Is this kind of cool? Or is that too crazy? And, and they sort of, caught up in the the process much more mm. it's interesting too i i found uh when i worked on a say a first project that was working with an architect on i don't know branding or science I can't remember what it was but i remember when they were sharing with me the plan drawing which is a line drawing of the overhead view of a building mm. the outline and the mm. doors and stuff it's like i was like what the hell is this thing mm. you know i was like I didn't even get what it was for a while. And it shows how stupid I can be. Um, But I reckon reckon clients would feel the same way. They're going... You know, it's like looking at sheet music or listening to the music as it's being played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sort of saying, look, it could sound a little bit like this. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Sheet music, what do you think of it? Yeah. God, I don't know what the hell is it. What the hell is it? Can you play me something? Yeah, that's really interesting. I I found too... I I do think... I think drawing is really undervalued mm. these days. And I, I sort of think that not being able to draw well and quickly and convincingly is like going into a gunfight armed with a spoon. You know, you guys yeah, yeah. And you need to be able to do that at all stages. If you're with a builder and everything's a negotiation and yeah. fight, you have to be able to say, hang on, we could just do it like this. And you have to draw it. Yeah, yeah. You can't get back to the computer and and draw it up carefully. It's always, it's this incredibly agile way of communicating. I know that in advertising, they used to do a lot of that. They used to do a lot of sketching, sketch out an ad or a storyboard or whatever. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, John Hegarty or someone said to me, the great thing about sketching and and, and if you can get your idea down and people understand your idea as a sketch, it can only get better from then. Mm. You know, whereas if you do your idea and you have to go through this laborious process of mocking things up to look super real, exactly. people get lost in kind of the realness of it and forget the, the initial kind of communication around the idea. I think it really pisses Camilla off when we go to presentations and it's all drawn up 
And she says, you always just turn the page over onto the blank side and then you start again. <laughs> oh, God. You know, and I think, and then, you know, but I think then you can feel when a person's engaged or when they remote. Mm. It's a really, I think that's a really dangerous moment in any presentation yeah. is when you feel like they're drifting because it's too hard to follow these drawings. You turn the page over and you say, okay, this is really in a simple idea what we're trying to do. Interior designers I work with or architects I work with, they're very, um, often I found them not very precious about what they're proposing. Not always, you might be. Um, but they were incredibly quick to go, Okay, if you think that we could do this mm. or sketch out, we could mm. do that, we could do that, we could do that. It's like, nah, okay, we could do this, this, this. It's like there's, there's endless options and very adaptable. Um, often people would say, well, that's actually, you're compromising perhaps or you're diluting your initial thinking. But I don't know if that's just generally in architecture and interior design where the people are much more adaptive or much more positive towards this continual change yeah, you know, towards I mean, I an outcome. A, a point of defeat and I think then you're scrambling, you know, because then you're just in a panic mode. You're but desperate. Yeah, there's this, and I think that's also a really terrible thing because you should be able to say to a client, you know what, I'd just like to think about that. Yeah, yeah. Because the minute you're doing everything on the run, it's, it's, I think they sense that there's this kind of weird You can be abused. Disbelief. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's like... You don't believe in what you're presenting. That's right. It's yeah. just like, I don't care. Well, you know, you, you tell me what it is. So when you flip the page over and Camilla gets upset... It's going back to what's the core of this whole thing that you're trying to do. Mm. What, in, it just distilled to like a couple of things. Mm -hmm. That's what Louis Kahn said. Some people understand the world through a blade of grass. And there was something we were taught at school. And I thought that was a really amazing way of mm. thinking about this unbelievable complexity. Yeah. It's not that it's... Because simplicity in it, you know, I sort of hate simplicity in all its forms, but there's a way of simplifying mm. the thing to what's its, what's its core? What's, its, what's the point of this whole thing that you're trying to do? Okay, now you got me. What the hell do you mean by you hate simplicity? <laughs> you know, I think the idea of simplification is it's kind of... Reduction. Rid of, yeah, it gets rid of all the nuances or subtleties or complexities or... In the world, and that's that's what makes work really interesting, you know. The complexity. I think the richness is like, you know, is is kind of when you simplify something, you're trying to get rid of, you're deleting all the complex, all the complex richness and nuances, mm. don't you think? Well, this is really interesting. I did a, we did a um, uh, what's it called a chat room conversation me and my business partner Ant Donovan who's uh, our creative director as well group creative director and it was really cool because we were talking we said is originality dead mm -hmm. that was the question because what we're seeing is happening is uh, you know from the old days of branding for example they were crests and they were inc incredibly intricate detailed because they're telling a story mm -hmm. and they were they, they were creating a point of difference each mark or each crest or the heraldry or whatever it might be was instantly recognizable and there was a story being told within that now we move to fast forward to today people are doing black and white helvetica caps um you know word marks mm -hmm. and the world isn't all about just a word mark or a logo as a brand it actually is so much more involved in that but what we're talking about was that that, that reduction over time like Less is more. Get right down to now Helvetica mm. in caps and black type mm. and going, well, now try to register that. Exactly. You know, now try to, what's the point of difference? It, originally, when people started to do it, it was new. Mm. But now the whole world is doing it. Mm. It's actually now going, well, are we going to start adding detail? Are we going to go back the other way where we're starting adding detail? I've always been interested in, in kind of much more complex ideas and, and feeling engaged and, and and in a way feeling creative about things. I think people do want to feel that they're creatively engaged in the mm. process. And I do think simplification just keeps dumbing things down so that at some point it's just this race to the bottom. Yeah. All, all they want you to be able to say is, got it, got it, got it. And I think when I look at work, I hate that. And when I can say, yep, got it, got it, got it. And then you see that and you think, that's that's like, what is that? You know, and that's something that dumbing down sort of 
And I think, the, you know, I think because a lot of architecture is about selling. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, that's become part of this whole, how do you dumb it down to the point where they can say, oh, it's a rock, it's a tent, it's a flower, it's a turtle. You know, oh, okay, no. Yeah. Whereas actually architecture isn't like that, you know, it's like yeah. an incredibly complex field and how you, and the way that travels to your imagination is actually quite a complex route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a dumb route. I mean, how has, how has technology then influenced you? But technology is just there. It doesn't help you think. And I think technology is there to help you realize things and, and communicate things. But, you know, I think it's not an idea. Technology isn't an idea. No, no, to, oh, no but it helps you, helps you, it's a mechanical tool to bring a building to life. Yeah, I mean, I think with the thing that we did for Judith Nielsen was unimaginable without the computer, mm-hmm. totally. But the idea of that room, of this kind of warped kind of curtain, that's an idea that would have existed independently of, uh, of how you came to realize it. You know what I mean? And we're talking about the Phoenix yeah. Gallery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, over in uh, Chippendale, which is yeah. right where we are today. Yeah. Um, did, it start, did it start with a sketch as well? I guess it must have done. It always starts with a sketch and an idea about what are you... What are you trying to make here? Mm. What is the point of this whole thing? Mm. What are you actually interested in mm. exploring? Because if you don't, if you're not clear about that, what, what are you interested in exploring through this project? Well, you know, five years later, you're going to be thinking, well, I don't know, what was the point of all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do your clients just say, "Hey, Neil, do back block jaggers. We want, we love what you do." We want you to do something for us. Do whatever you want. No, no, nobody ever says do what you want. I don't think. Okay. Everybody has. Um, Was it worth a try? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that's kind of, you know, in a weird way, it's kind of the absence of limits is kind of boring. I so having parameters is important, I believe. Totally. Yeah. You know, I think everybody thinks the dream job is this project without limits. But no, I don't. I used to, but you used to yeah, exactly. Yeah. You used to. Think, oh, Somebody would just let me do whatever I wanted. Yeah, but that, actually, that's quite intimidating, isn't it? Yeah, it's like you know, and actually, there's no way of judge. You know, there's no way of judging it either, really. And I no. think judgment's crucial in in what you're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. We were lucky enough to work together on a project. Is that the only project we worked on? Uh, the 2008 Abundant Exhibition, mm-hmm. it was an architectural exhibition at Venice Architectural Biennale. Mm-hmm. Spectacular! It was incredible. First time I've been to Venice. Last time I've been to Venice, and it was amazing. It's just like an architectural dream. Just walking around the Biennale and seeing just incredible inspiration from around the world. We we're obviously in the Australian uh, Pavilion uh, before it was redesigned, mm-hmm. um, and and it was there was a few of us came together on this, and it was designing abundant. Mm-hmm. And I think it was your idea, wasn't it? Around the whole the incredible array of projects that are coming out of Australia. I think there was 300 models, yeah. Australian architectural mm-hmm. models in this garden of architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, we created a new color, Dulux yellow. It was a special color we made mm-hmm. for it, which is really cool. But it was spectacular mm-hmm. to see all of those different architects, all those different models and sizes and projects come together. Mm-hmm. It obviously encouraged a whole bunch of architects to come to Venice, which is cool. Exactly. So it was kind of good for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. How do you think Architecture in Australia has changed in the last 13 years. I think it's hard to, to be clear because it's such a complex field now. Mm-hmm. But I do think at, at one level, there's, I think you mentioned it before, you sort of get everything rises to a certain level mm-hmm. and then it stays there. Yep. And that becomes kind of generic. The new norm, yeah. And the generic is always kind of boring, I think. Yeah. So what was radical has become generic. Generic. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something, when you look around the city now, what's radical became the norm. And I think, you know, that's a kind of a weird place to be where, you know, so so if you're interested in sort of always avoiding where the herd's going, then what you're looking for, the new things that you're looking for, mm-hmm. are often sort of things that have been left behind in, in yeah. that race to to kind of be interesting. 
You know, it's something that I thought about a lot since I came to Australia. That building is spectacular, isn't it? It's still spectacular still, today. Absolutely. And and the kind of the whole controversy around that building, there was the cost, but also the design. Mm. Um, and you go, did that put, because all that controversy that happened at that time, is that, wasn't it 70s? Or, mm. yeah. Um, did that actually scare the crap out of architects about doing anything interesting for quite a long time because I, I, it looked to me like Sydney was pretty dull in terms of architecture generally until relatively recently where it feels like there's a new creative confidence that seems to be kind of coming through. You might, you might feel like it's got to a plateau, but I still think it's, my God, Australia has really embraced design and creativity in architecture and branding and communication and et cetera. So I do think that, I personally think it, things have got a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot better. But I kind of wonder if that that period, for like twenty years after that, the Opera House was there caution. You know, I think, as you said, Australia seems like something just tacked onto the back of the Opera House. You know, and maybe it was just so awesome that people just didn't quite know what to do with it. And I mm. think there was this huge reaction against it as well, mm. because it was seen as like wasteful or exuberant or it was something that was unmanageable. It was this kind of creativity that had been let out of the, the box and it was had gone nuts and had destroyed like so many people's lives. And you know, and Utsin was had to flee and yeah. it was just this really weird tale about a, a mm. building. And I think it was something that was so I don't know, maybe some projects are so powerful that you don't know how to work with them. And I do think that the the legacy of the Opera House, the potential legacy, has never been embraced fully in Sydney. Yeah. You know? do, do you think that... It's interesting because people often compare Sydney with Melbourne and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But you look at Melbourne. Melbourne didn't seem to have that issue. I, I've always saw Melbourne, since I've been coming here to Australia since, you know, the mid-90s, mm -hmm. that it was very progressive, Melbourne. People's homes were highly uh, creative. They were really... Uh, pushing the boundaries then and mm. prior, I guess, M much more than Sydney. Mm. Sydney felt so conservative in, in in that regard, and people keep saying, "Oh, yeah, but you got the beaches, so therefore people spend more time on the beach." I don't, I don't believe that. That's the reason. I, f I feel like there was this constraint around it for some reason, and it might be, it might be planning permission. It might be the government that's actually the, created the uh, you know really strict regulations around um, as a result of. What happened to the Opera House? In a way, it's kind of a well-trodden argument. I, I don't know what the... Well, what's the answer? I just kind of wonder why Melbourne seemed ahead of the game in terms of its creativity, in terms of architectural um, diversity and, um, you know, creating really, not, not challenging buildings, but, but I think they were much more playful and expressive. But, you know, I think when... Because like you, I mean, but I was an, an outsider and you sort of did look at Melbourne and there were these incredible people involved in defining the culture, whether it was Boyd or Corrigan and those sort of people who kind of really pushed intellectually what is architecture in Australia. Okay, and just because they were just there, they could have been in Sydney. Yeah, I mean, they could have been here and I think Sydney would have been different. Okay, I think, all right. You know, where Sydney didn't, ha didn't actually seem to have that, those kind of cultural figures. Mm. We had amazing architects like Zeidler and, and so on. But they never really pushed what was it like to be an Australian architect? What did it mean to be working in Australia? Whereas I think Boyd with Australian ugliness, um, Corrigan who came back and really in, engaged with what's the kind of suburban culture of Australia, mm. kind of made it fascinating. You know? mm. And they really made you think culturally, what is it like to be working here? Whereas Zeidler was making these amazing architectural buildings but not they weren't intellectually that sort of confronting mm. they were sort of much more tied to what was going on overseas they were yeah. really breakthroughs in terms of commercial ideas about the city and and city planning but they weren't focused on the place in as much i don't think well i guess if you fast track it now from the silo period to, to now in a way we're kind of we're now catching up we're caught up with Melbourne, I think, in terms yeah, of yeah. it feels like, you know, people like you obviously are, are making a massive difference to the Australian landscape. 
uh, and you know more so in I guess in um, Sydney. In terms of um, and other architects, I guess back in Melbourne, I guess that work that was being done earlier on with a very expressive work attracted more people, other architects to be doing the same. It kind of gave people creative permission, yeah. you know, confidence. I think, was, I think it was much more comfortable. Or maybe expected too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like totally relaxed about it. Like it could look ugly, it could look weird, it could be, you know, and actually in a funny way, like Australian culture seemed like that at that moment. Yeah, yeah, it did. Know? Like Dame Edna just seemed like, of course, that's what Australia is like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not this sort of perfect environment. You know, whereas, like, they were, you thinking, and I still think ARM yeah. you know, are still like that. I mean, I find they were kind of staggering and kind of breathtaking yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's never allowing you to be comfortable or refined or it sort of it, it rejects that kind of idea, mm. you know. And, and I think in a weird way that was always what Australia was like, you know. It was just, I didn't give a rat about like, like anything that was possible. Yeah, yeah. I lived I lived in Melbourne for two years when we first came here, and I was just I remember driving around some suburbs and just sometimes you stumble across a house, mm. and you're going, "Oh my god, mm. um, look at that!" I mean, just it was just like it was just like a black box or a mm. copper box. It was just like no windows, mm. and I'm trying to think of one specifically. Um, it didn't have it. Didn't care about good taste in the way that I think Austra- Sydney. Does I think it, but now it feels like it is good taste, doesn't it? It feels like it's no, it is. It's challenging. Everything gets swallowed up so fast, you know, and just spat out again. It's yeah, like, you know, and I think that's the problem with with our, you know pop culture is that it just keeps devouring everything in its path and representing it as something kind of cool. What are, What are your favorite projects you've worked on? The favorite, you know, no, I don't. Every well, you know, like you, I don't. Tell every, me. Every project is, you know, you, you sort of like all of them ah. in, in a way. Um, well, I think the, the North Bondi RSL is staggering. Thank you. you must see, do you see that every day when you're down the beach? You do, but as I, I said to you earlier, it's like I, I sometimes, you know, you walk, you, there's this, you detach quite, I do, quite quickly from the work. Like when you're doing it, it's all consuming and when it's finished, it's like could be by anybody else. It's sort of this weird feeling, like it's sort of you're not a, you're not that attached to it anymore. It's like, if, but when you're working on it, it's like that's all there is in your life. You're obsessed. Yeah, but when it's over, it's like. Is it is it because you're onto something else? Probably, you know, it could be that you sort of taken up with the next thing. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's. It kind of loses its heat, or some. I, I don't know what it is. Do you ever, do you ever think, oh, I wish I'd done that differently? You know, I almost don't think about it again. Okay, it's kind all right. Of weird. Well, I'm not going to be your like, shrink, okay? Yeah, yeah. I'll just. <laughs> it's like you just don't think. You know, you sometimes think, oh, that wasn't that interesting, or that was that that wasn't that good. But it's not like you have this kind of credible emotional attachment to it anymore. It's kind of you've detached a bit from it, and you know, it's, it's, it's like what Lennon said, like. Once he'd finished the song, he never listened to it again. That was it. He didn't play it over and over and over and over. It's interesting, over, over time, you know, one building at a time, you're starting to kind of create a pattern or a, uh, a legacy in, in, in a place. Mm-hmm. Does that not give you any kind of satisfaction? Sometimes you walk, you know, of course I'd be lying if you didn't walk around and say, ah. Oh, that's, that's a little bit like this or that's a little bit like that. And, you know, within the office we sometimes laugh about that. Are people, you, you influencing other people's work? You can sort of see traces of it and you can think... Oh, that's not that. what I meant. But yeah. I just in terms of, I meant in terms of the buildings you guys are doing. You know, I mean, you started with one. You started with that, that apartment that you modern, you know, the interior or whatever you did. Yeah, the Einfeld thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, in a way, I think what... You, you know, there's this moment just after university, I, I really believe, when you, you almost all your ideas are kind of established in their rawest possible form. Uh-huh. And what, for life? I think so. And ah. as growing older, you start to just either enhance or reject or kind of play with those ideas. But it's almost like the foundation. I don't know if this is true, 
but it's something that I, I genuinely do believe. Mm. There's this kind of crucial moment in your early 20s when it's this, this weird intersection of, of innocence and, yeah. and ambition, and you kind of almost establish your, your, your interests. And it's all they, like they're all there. Mm. And you pick them up and play with them develop those sometimes yeah and then you get bored with them and then you pick up those and develop those ideas but i think like my influences like corb khan alto were all they just were there mm-hmm. and in the intervening sort of 40 years of course there've been these kind of curious affairs with like various architects work and you sort of think hey that's really cool and crazy and then and then they kind of fade out again, and still the ones that you loved, you know, in your in your twenties are still the most powerful. Mm. And maybe I, I don't know if that's true about in other fields. Mm. In, in, for musicians, maybe they they hear things in their twenties at this weird intersection yeah, yeah. of of innocence and experience, and that that intersection yeah. that kind of gives rise to all their interests. So it's those early days where you're like a sponge. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the things, the the people, the work, the, the environment, exactly. the music, whatever it might be that's, that's influenced you that moment in time. Like all those things that happened in the, the late 60s and 70s for me are still the most kind of compelling, you know, politically, architecturally, sort of artistically. You know, all the people then, like Bucky Fuller and Khan and... And the, the musicians that happened then are still the most, mm. for me, the richest influence. That yeah. There's an incredible well of, of fascination. But some, someone who was uh, 23, 25 today, but born, born in the kind of late 90s, I guess. I, I mean, I kind of I, really feel... But aren't they having the same experience that you had? You know, I think it was so... With, with a kind of a more, like, up to, you know, more recent... Yeah. I think uh, there's this incredible torrent now of, of, inf- of influences. And it's almost hard to know what's... But it's difficult to talk about 20-year-olds now. I, I have no idea what... But sometimes I'll, I'll, they're still listening to the things we listen to. Like the Beatles still... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Corb, you know, we get people, the young clients coming in and saying, have you heard of this Corb guy? And I think... Yeah, you know. <laughs> he's my idol. You know, I found him first. Yeah, you know, and they show you this corb tile or this corb chair, and and you say, God, you know, and it's taken sixty, like a hundred years for him to become part of the kind of culture now. Yeah, I guess so he was radical of, at the time. Think, I do think we were quite lucky to have very few influences. Yeah, and they were, and you understood them incredibly densely. And, and through them, you kind of met other people. And all the influences back then are still powerful figures. For me. Yeah, absolutely. But what I mean today, uh, I mean, so how you consumed information in those days was via probably books. Yeah. You know, now, now it's just like your, our phones. You can look at anything from anywhere in the world, any moment in time. I don't know where how you filter that. Yeah. It all looks bloody good. It all it looks, looks good. Like, it's no, like, there's wow. no way of kind of incorporating them into a worldview, I think. You know, it's very, I don't know if you ever listened to Dylan's Nobel, I don't know if there's time for this, but Dylan's Nobel's speech when he got the prize. But it kind of was amazing because he said there were three books that influenced everything that he wrote. And, he, mm. and then he spoke about them so amazingly. Mm. You know, it was Moby Dick, The Odyssey, and I've forgotten the third one. It's about the, the war. And he, he spoke about them so compellingly. Mm-hmm. He said that was it. Mm. Those three books influenced everything. And he read them in his 20s. Isn't that amazing? And, and he's kind of used them forever as these kind of sources for everything. And very aware of that. Totally. I Because mean, some people might do that without being aware that that was their influence. Exactly. And it was kind of, it was staggering for me that he was so clear-minded about what, how he read each of those three books. All's Quiet on the Western Front was the third. Mm. And he spoke about them in a way that you, it was so, um, like, it was so poetically powerful, mm. you know. And, and then he said, that's it. There was nothing else really wow. that influenced me. And I Isn't that think, amazing? 
you know, no, actually, that's why I do, th- you know, and maybe that's why I think why those why his speech resonated was because I do think in your twenties you have this. It's almost like the big bang, your intellectual big bang, and mm-hmm. that's it, and everything kind of explodes out slowly from that, you know, and that's it. I, I don't know if it's luck or good fortune, but you just happen to meet or meet people who said listen to Hendrix or. Meet, and that person said, listen to Buckminster mm. Fuller. And mm. that person said, yeah. read this book, you know, yeah. Alice Castaneda, whatever. And so you kind of, it felt like this weird sort of, looking back, dodgem cars. It was just luck. Do you think it's still happening? For me? I mean, just generally, like young kids today, are they having that same kind of inspiration? But I, I, mean, I it's just, just don't know how you deal with it when there's this, like, immense torrent of stuff yeah, that's yeah. pouring out every second totally of every day. Like, how do you engage with it? Yeah. Whereas back then, things were clearer and simpler. And, and we were all producing content. I mean, this podcast is, you'd never been able to do this podcast 20 years ago because we cost an absolute fortune. Exactly. And the technology is advanced, and I can do it now for virtually nothing. Mm. Just buy your lunch. <laughs> that was a good sandwich, by the way, that wasn't was it? That was very good. Um, but it, but things have shifted. So we're all creating content. I mean, before I mean, I talked about that with our, you know, my own I guess history. Someone like back in London when I was working, you know, I I got featured in a few. I was lucky enough to be featured in a magazine called Creative Review. That would came out once a month. It had an editor. The editor chose what went in. The content went into that magazine every month, and I was lucky that he chose me. And that was the beginning of getting more work featured in in magazines. But they looked at the world and they made the edit mm. where, and it was magazines and uh, companies such as that, they were investing in creating content. And today every single individual can create content mm. and is creating content. So that that's a very different situation because there's, there's no one editing and we mm. are, we are exactly. editing, but so no one's kind of in a way saying, well, this is good. That's bad. That's yeah. fake. That's real. That's worth looking at. That's not worth looking at. You know, we got to we got to go through that whole mind. We got exactly. the whole mindful of finding out what what we what we like. But you know, I think also, I mean, it maybe sounds like we're these really old. Sort yeah, of, a couple of old guys. We kind of like, you know the good old days. But I do think there was that there was this kind of idea that if this guy liked that, and then this woman loved that, then and you loved them, yeah, then that's what you were interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In. And, and it was just luck, really. Yeah. But, you know, then we would go and see every Fellini movie. Like and every yeah. Altman movie and you know and but it was kind of curated because there wasn't that much going on. Yeah. You know, I think Well there we probably was a lot going on, but I think we benefited from scarcity. But I think ma- now we don't we, we don't benefit from scarcity. There's there's too much. I think scarcity is a really interesting way of, of thinking and being still. Being still? I think scarcity is a really interesting way to operate. That there's that less, there's less things that you you're fascinated by, or less mm. things that you deal with, or less books that you see. Or less, you know, I still look at old movies over and over because for me they're still the most. What's uh, yeah? I do that with Dumber and Dumber with my yeah, kids. Well, yeah. <laughs> you talk about you talk about like art films. Um, what's your home like? Is it sparse? No, it's completely congested. Oh, <laughs> with, with stuff you love. With stuff, yeah. stuff you love. Yeah. So I was going to say, but you, you said but it's about like incredibly unprecious, and it's stuff I've just collected over, you know. And sometimes I think, luckily, people don't see that, you know, because it's. I think sometimes when people visit, they think, "Fuck, you know, I thought it was going to be just a white orchid in the corner <laughs> and a white Flacardi rug and things like this." What the? Where's all this stuff from? You know? are, you, are you that guy that hoards stuff no, no, in, kind of in Bondi? But it's just like you're just fascinated by various things. And, yeah. But I don't know. It's like you, like in the, you must have influences like George. Like for me, Crazy Cat was this really, I mean, you know, Crazy Cat, George Harriman cartoons. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that for me, that was just seeing that. It's, but that was just because somebody, Wilhelm, said to me, have you ever seen this stuff? It's really cool. Yeah. And you just look at it and, you, and now still I like the way that he drew and represented things. Yeah. 
Amazing. That's cool. Congratulations on winning the design competition for the pencil building in Pitt Street. That looks so cool and stunning. It kind of reminds me a bit of the, some of the developments I saw when I was last in New York about a year and a half ago, those incredibly tall, thin buildings on, on tight sites. Um, did you draw inspiration from that, or was it just the, the, the site itself was quite a narrow... Is this, was, is this six metres wide or something? Six and a half metres wide. You know, that was a given. There was a stage one DA envelope. It said, this is how wide it could be, this is how tall it could be. Just like the width of one of those Victorian working cottages. Yeah, it's just like a 30 <coughs> terraces piled one on top of the other. How funny. So it's not like we developed the, the proportions of the site. No. We worked to enhance that. Yeah. Are we going to see more of that type of work, do you think, in Sydney? You know, I think, I, I don't know, I guess the sites, everybody's trying to maximise whatever site they can get. You know, so. Well, there's been restrictions over the years, hasn't there, around how high you can go, but yeah. now they're talking about skyscrapers going you know, much, I mean, the Crown obviously is, uh, if we can talk about the Crown, um, is the tallest building in Sydney now? Mm. It's not that tall, really, is it? I mean, it's for Sydney, but it's not it's for... Tall. Is it? It is pretty. Um, I, it's funny, you know, AMP Capital down on Circular Quay, mm. that used to be the tallest that's building right. in Australia. And that's like, what is that, 10 stories or something? Yeah, Fantastic building that. Mm. Um, Judith Nielsen uh, has made a huge impact on Sydney on the Sydney art scene uh, with her philanthropy and generosity, and you know White Rabbit Gallery, etc. What was it like working with her as a client alongside John Wardle uh, on the Phoenix Gallery? Judith, she's kind of amazing because she's fearless, mm -hmm. and I think that's part of that is because she's been involved with art mm -hmm. and artists for a long time, but nothing was too risky or too weird or too out there for her. It was always like, is that, it was always driven by, is that the best it can be? Mm. It was not, not like, oh, I don't know, that's a bit sort of like, uh, you know, weird. Mm -hmm. It was always like, if you think that's the absolute best it can be, let's run with it. And so as a, as a critic, it's, you know, it's quite a confronting thing to come back every time and think, well, and say to the student, is, is that the best it can be? You know, that you were never allowed to be comfortable or satisfied with it, that you were always questioning. Mm. And that, that was her role. I mean, it was an amazing... Is she the best client you've ever had? I think every client has brings... Careful answer, I like that. Yeah, Very yeah. cautious. Every, every client brings something. Do you think uh, William Smart's Indigo Slam Next Door influenced you too? Because they do, we walked by there just now after we had yeah. our lovely sandwich. Yeah. I mean, they work, don't they? They work really well together, those three buildings that are there. I think... It kind of feels... It, know, every th every context is a huge influence. I mean, everything we do is adding to this, the geography of the city, right? Mm. I mean, because all you're doing is you're just remaking this geography yeah. slowly. And if it works comfortably with what's around it, I think then it's a much more successful... Project, but William's building was pretty out there when it's when it arrived, and mm. you know it set a very it set almost a sound level. Yeah, yeah. That was that you thought, how do you respond to that sound? You, you know, and I think John responded to it. He engaged with it much more. You know, whereas I think we kind of could drift away to the edge of it more easily. What do you think? Because William did the, the White Rabbit Gallery too, which mm. was done probably 20 years now. Mm. Well, no, it would have been 20 years. 15 years ago. That looks quite, not conservative, but it, it looks pretty straight compared yeah, yeah. to Indigo Slam. Mm. What happened, do you think, with Judith in between you know, White Rabbit Gallery and Indigo Slam? It seems to be like she obviously had, had like changed in terms of her creative confidence as well, I mm. would say. I think the brakes came off some, at some point, you know, the kind of fear of making a mistake, maybe. Mm. It, wasn't, it wasn't there anymore. No. For her or for William. It was that, like, let's that, take that chance together. That, that creative confidence is so powerful, isn't it? Mm. Especially if you've got the resources to be able to deliver on that. And that often stops creative people from doing things, is mm. that the, the kind of the sec, sec, doubting themselves... Or not being able to fulfill their but ideas. Do you think part of what we do is to kind of, kind of enhance that creative 
because everybody's creative, right? Yeah, everyone's born creative. Yeah, and sometimes they're kind of repressed or smothered or yeah, yeah, yeah. abandoned for some weird reason. Yeah. And I think part of what we do is to always say, why don't we just try this out together? Mm. You swim every day at icebergs on, at Bondi. Mm -hmm. That's why you're so fit mm -hmm. uh, and tanned. Um, how important is this for you as your routine? It's just become a habit. I don't think it's that important. Well, what does, it, what does it give you? It. What does it give you? You're not just doing it, you know, out no, of habit, to surely. Get, to get fit or anything. It's just that. How do you feel? It's just actually something like, you know, it's just time out. And actually being in water is an amazing. A lot of people, a lot of architects, for instance, uh, say they're influenced by nature, mm -hmm. which is true. And I think they, that we are too, like, by, you know, nature. But I think what swimming's made me think is that we're really influenced by water itself. You know, we're influenced by its kind of pollucidness or its kind of ability to change quickly or its kind of murkiness or its sparkling qualities or and its kind of the weight of water. All those sort of things mm -hmm. are actually kind of influences in our work, mm. much more so than trees or leaves and plants and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so swimming kind of just makes you remember how do you incorporate those amazing atmospheres back into architecture because mm. they're really powerful volatile quality and they can go range from being incredibly soothing to incredibly scary have you ever had time when you haven't been swimming do you, do you no, wow never swim pretty well every you, day. if you don't go for a day do you feel a bit itchy weird, and yeah. cranky twitchy you obviously didn't go this morning <laughs> <laughs> Um, very envious of that. I don't know why I'm envious because I should I should have the balls to do it myself. You know, I've always envious of people who have got routine and they stick to it and they, and they live by it. You know, like surfers down up in north yeah, yeah. north north uh, Avalon near where I am. And every single day since they were a child, they're out there, hmm. and that's just their life. It's hmm. not exercise. It's, it's just their life. Exercise. You know, yeah, the the the. You know, I'm really enjoying sitting there looking at plants, hmm. uh, at greenery. I'm, I'm the idea of you know, COVID's made us all slow down. Mm -hmm. uh, being in uh, isolation up there for Christmas was, uh, I was really slowing down. And um, I started going to read things around pottering and uh, still and calm. There's loads of books coming out on it. There's lots of conversations <laughs> about it. But it's, it's, a, it's a movement in itself. It's like, uh, sometimes you feel like you're the only person experiencing these things. Then you look around going, actually, there's a whole bunch of other people feeling the same thing. Um, the same. The danger is too is around when you think you've got a really good idea. Um, no, undoubtedly, someone else is actually thinking the same idea and probably could beat you to it. And so it sounds like to me that like that's a very important part of your life. You know, your what you do, your creative, your architecture, your creative collaborations, uh, and you seem to have a really good balance in your life where you you give yourself time or create time for yourself. And I think that the office. I think they work around that, which is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. And meetings are kind of, I mean, it sounds indulgent, but meetings are arranged around that as well. Mm -hmm. and so around what? Hmm? Around what? The fact that I like to just draw and swim in the morning. Oh, I see, I see. And so the office kind of just says, no, well, you know, 10, 10.30 is when... He finally arrives. We sort of get going. Yeah. You know? Doesn't mean that they're not there, like, a lot earlier. And, yeah. And... You know, it is crucial to have that time. Do you feel like you do you think you've designed your life? No. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty idyllic to me. Do you think it's just happened by chance? It's, it surely hasn't. No, I think it's a mixture of like low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And hating simplicity. But would you like a simpler life? No. You wouldn't? I, mean, I think the idea of living... Somewhere far away from the city is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're one of those. Oh, you, you don't like the countryside. No. Really? What does that make you feel? I kind of terrifying. It just makes me feel anxious. I think I, I love, I love what the city is. You know? That's interesting. But I also love the fact that it's that Sydney is a weird city. Yeah, you're five minutes from the town. You're always at the at water. You know, yeah, always yeah, yeah. at the park or. I mean, it's, it is kind of an amazing environment to be. I mean, if you imagine, if you try to imagine this kind of utopian city, I think Sydney 
has to be very It's got to be. I mean, that's yeah. why it's again and again voted, you know, top three cities mm -hmm. in the world, isn't it? Uh, is it Vancouver, Melbourne and Melbourne. Sydney? Well, what inspires you? You know, I, I'm sort of easily inspired. There's nothing, there's no sort of magic, you know, like I think you can find anything fascinating. It's not, I mean, does it sound a bit, sim like I sound maybe a bit simplistic, but, you know, I do think you can find anything. If you're doing a project, sometimes the weirdest thing can be the source of, of that project. Mm. Do you find the clients inspiring? I think all people that you work with are, can be inspiring. Everybody, everybody will say something that you think, wow, I hadn't really thought about it quite like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And it's just being yeah, open I quit. to that. <laughs> no, it's like, you know, I think, I think people, even, you know, young people in the office think that they don't influence projects but well, they do but they do because actually you they some say something and if you're not alert to that or curious about yeah, it yeah. or open to it you you would miss it because yeah, it's yeah. just like this throwaway line and clients can be like that they can say something and you think god i really never thought about it quite like that yeah, yeah. like we once had a a client uh, you know i mean because i'm half deaf he said it sounded like he'd said i want I want the house to be like an iPhone. That's what it sounded like. And I thought, fuck, that is such a cool idea. Like, <laughs> what, what, what would it possibly oh mean my to make God. a house like an iPhone? Or what did he say? I want it to be like a home. What? Yeah. I want my house to be like a home. You but wanted it to be was, like an iPhone. But because I was half deaf, I'd misheard it as... I want the house to be like an And he iPhone. thought, and you reacted so positive, going, oh and my God, like, that's that genius. Like, <laughs> I remember going back to the office and saying, wouldn't that just be the coolest thing if you could make a project like an iPhone? Oh my God. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, Neil, thank you so much. But it's been so good to catch up with you. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers with Neil Durback. Tune in next week where I'll be catching up with Kelvin Ho, the founder of the Sydney-based spatial communications practice, Akin Atelier. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe.